Welcome. You're listening to a sermon podcast from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. It is always so good to be back here. Um, obviously, so many years of my life have been spent here at uh, Oak Hills uh, Church, and so it's my pleasure to hang out with you and um, get a chance to bring God's word again. I brag about Oak Hills Church everywhere I go. I work with around 50 churches in Northern California and also some other churches from time to time around Canada, United States. And uh, I'm just in conversation about the church today in America all the time. And I always get the chance to talk about this church and the things that you are doing. We're talking about justice today. And just last week, you have a whole sermon and experience about the refugees, the Afghan refugees. You have another story here that Cordy shared about she and her husband with the uh, bicycles and just that heart and such is, is, so, is so beautiful. So I'm thankful to be back. Thank you for having, uh, giving me this opportunity. Our topic for today... Uh, which I mentioned already, is a topic, in my estimation and study uh, at least, is perhaps the most dominant theme throughout Scripture from beginning to end, the topic of justice. Let's define that as the desire and the agenda of God to put things right. The desire and the agenda of God to put things right. And throughout Scripture, the focus of God's justice is on the needs of the oppressed, Usually the words used are the widow, the orphan, the stranger, the poor, those on the margins. Because of the overwhelming abundance of scripture, we can confidently declare that God hears the cry of the poor, the oppressed, no matter what the situation. And it is his intention to ultimately put things right and to liberate and to rescue those who are on the margins of society. So mention the widow, the orphan. The stranger, the refugee, the poor, the oppressed. I have found that when I am in a season of confusion, perhaps even despair and doubt about this world and about our role as followers of Jesus in this world, the one practice that helps bring me back to the heart of God and his presence is to pay attention and be with those most harmed by the power structures of this world. Those who are left out. Those on the outside. Those who have been forgotten. Those who cry out to God for justice. And when I go there, when I go to those places, I meet God because God is always there. And it's hard for many of us in this country, we should admit this to each other, who live in relative affluence and comfort to feel this injustice in this world deeply because it's not our particular normal experience. A few years uh, back, I was in a, I was in a Bible study um, with two homeless men here in Folsom, uh, ju- just three of us in the study. And we're studying the parable of the Good Samaritan, the story of the guy who got robbed and beat up and left on the side of the road and two religious leaders saw him and crossed over the other side of the road because they didn't want to have to deal with him. And he was eventually cared for by a Samaritan who was a hated figure in Jewish society. This is a really stern story that Jesus tells here. These are the kinds of stories that got Jesus killed all the time by the powers that be. Well, as we talked about the story, I realized that throughout my life, whenever I reflected on the story and tried to identify with the characters in the story, if I was feeling bad about myself, 
I would see myself as the religious leader who crossed over to the other side of the road to ignore the guy in need. If I was feeling particularly good about myself, I would see myself as the good Samaritan uh, who took care of the guy who got robbed and beat up. But my two friends, both of them immediately identified with the guy who was beaten up. And I sat there and I realized that never in my life, in all the hundreds of time I've read and reflected on that passage, I never identified with the guy who got beat up. Because that's not my usual experience in life. And the thought came to me that I will never, ever be able to read and understand the Bible deeply if I am not in some kind of conversation and association with the poor, the outcast, the oppressed, the stranger. I'll just read and study the Bible through my own eyes. And I will miss so very much. The vast majority of the Bible is written by oppressed people to oppressed people. And it is very difficult for those of us who live with relative affluence and power to feel this deeply until we study and read through the eyes of those who are on the outside who have been harmed by the powerful forces of this world. And it's not our typical lived experience. And because of this, I will be in danger of completely missing and neglecting the biblical theme of justice for the oppressed. Case in point, and I'd love feedback from the worship leaders at Oak Hills to confirm or deny this, but a couple years ago, a study was done by, of the top 25 worship songs used by churches in the United States. I guess someone keeps a track of them somehow, running around the churches and noting them down and putting in some study or something. And out of these t- most popular 25 songs, the word justice is used only once. Yet just one of the Hebrew words for justice is used 65 times in 33 different psalms, the, the songbook of the church. The songbook of the church, the book of psalms, speaks about the poor or poverty on almost every page. Yet in the top 25 songs, there were zero references to the poor or poverty. The Psalms, not to mention the prophets, draw constant attention to the widow, the orphan, the refugee, and the oppressed. And yet in the top 25 worship songs, these references are completely absent. The point here, though, is not to go find some songs now to refer to justice and widows and orphans and start singing them. Of course, that would be wonderful. We probably should do that. And knowing Oak Hills as well as I do and the leaders here, I'm certain that conversations about this happen all the time with a huge desire to address this. But the major point here is just to acknowledge that perhaps the most important and dominant theme in the Psalms, justice for the poor and the oppressed, is absent from the worship of most churches on Sunday morning. And if we do not attend carefully to this, we will have a very inadequate and underdeveloped understanding of who God is. So let's jump right into our psalm today, Psalm 146. I could have picked dozens of them because justice runs through uh, the psalms. But I just landed finally on this one, Psalm 146. I think it'll be up on the screen. I invite you to stand for our reading of Scripture, if you wouldn't mind. Or even if you do, no, if you don't, if you don't want to, sit, that's fine. But whoever wants to sit, stand. That's enough. Psalm 146. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, my soul. I will praise the Lord all my life. I will sing praise to my God as long as I live. 
Do not put your trust in princes and human beings who cannot save. When their spirit departs, they return to the ground. On that very day, their plans come to nothing. Blessed are those whose help is in the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord their God. He is the maker of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them. He remains faithful forever. He upholds the cause of the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the foreigner and sustains the fatherless and the widow. But he frustrates the way of the wicked. The Lord reigns forever. Your God, O Zion, for all generations. Praise the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. You can be seated. This sound begins, like, like many sounds, of course, with all, this almost ecstatic expression of praise to God. Praise the Lord, the, how, the, the, the psalmist says, or uh, in Hebrew, hallelujah. And then the psalmist talks to himself or to his soul, and he says, essentially, do you hear me, soul? Praise the Lord. And then the psalmist makes this big declaration, kind of an emotional bravado-like one. I will praise the Lord all my life. I will sing praises to my God for as long as I live. And then he goes off on an aside about not trusting in princes or worldly powers who cannot save you. Don't put your hope in them. But you are blessed if your hope and rescuer is the God of justice. And then the psalm who told us to pray, the psalmist who told us to, himself to praise God, told us and himself to praise God, then he tells us what we should praise him for. He's the creator of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in it. And he is faithful forever. And then he goes on now for a while to hit on our theme today. God, the psalmist tells us, upholds the cause of the oppressed. Or some translations say it. He executes justice for the oppressed. He brings justice for the oppressed. And he gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the foreigner and sustains the fatherless and the widow. But he frustrates the way of the wicked. The Lord reigns forever. Praise the Lord. So listen again to the list of people for whom God promises to bring justice, to, to set things right. The oppressed, the hungry, the prisoner, the blind, those who are bowed down, the foreigner, the fatherless, the widow. And this expression of God's desire for justice for those who are being harmed by the powers of evil and oppression in this world, this is multiplied over and over and over in the Bible. Sometimes we just miss it because we don't have the eyes to see it. And what predominates throughout the Bible, though, when we talk about justice, is the joy that comes when things are put right. It's possible, I think, for, for many of, of us to develop a less than joyful vision of justice. We might have a grim picture when we think of it of a courtroom where a black-robed judge is sternly handing down judgment to some guilty sinner. Or a picture of revenge where the, the, the bad guy is caught and severely punished. This is not the vision of justice that predominates in the Bible. Justice in the Bible is closely connected with the concept of being rescued, salvation, being saved from my difficult situation, my situation of oppression. And so in the midst, there is joy. We see this throughout the Bible. 
For example, Psalm 98 says, Let the sea resound in everything in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy. Let them sing before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the earth in righteousness and the peoples with equity. He's going to come and do this, so let's party. There are many Psalms like this. In Isaiah 11, moving out of the Psalms, God equips the coming king with his own spirit, God's own spirit of wisdom and understanding, so that he will be able to judge the poor with righteousness and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And this begins to introduce this fascinating prophecy of a new creation, which will end the violence and death even in the animal kingdom. It goes on to say, the wolf will lie down with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the lion and the calf will live together in peace, and on and on it goes there. And they will neither harm nor destroy, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of God as the waters cover the sea. A similar prophecy comes later in Isaiah 65. There is this announcement of a new heaven and a new earth. And there is a sense, not just of astonishment about this, but of joy. It isn't hard to see why if we just imagine for a little bit. Suppose you live in a, in a village in ancient Israel. And living together in community, some other communities, always, or bigger communities, it's always going to bring problems, right? Uh, disputes, injustices. Rich and powerful people can, and often do, throughout the history of the world, exploit the poor. The widows and orphans who have nobody to stand up for them. But once in a while, the judge comes around in his regular circuit, and the people who have been oppressed and robbed of their, their rights or their livelihood are longing for the moment where things now will be put right. And so the judge comes, puts things right, and the whole community will rejoice. Justice means rescue. It means celebration. It's, it, it means joy. This biblical vision, again, uh, emerges in Psalm 72, which talks about the coming king who will rule over the whole wide world. Not because he's a mighty, mighty warrior, not because he's the builder of big cities, but because he does justice for the poor and the widow and the oppressed. Now, the theological foundation for this biblical emphasis on justice is that the reason God made this world in the first place is because he wanted and still wants and intends to make this world his home. He wants to fill all creation with his glory and his love and his power and his justice. That's his plan. We see this in the Old Testament, the, the, this truth in the, the wilderness uh, tabernacle. Well, God came and lived among the Israelites in the wilderness in the creation of Solomon's temple where his presence filled the temple. And in the book of Revelation near the end where John says, look, the dwelling of God is with humans. Many of our religious traditions, particularly in the West, have totally ignored this thing. Because we have often been taught, or it's just assumed, that the point of biblical faith is to finally leave this world. I'm just a passing through. And to go dwell with God in his home somewhere else. And uh, that's just not how the Bible talks about it. The Bible tells the story completely differently. It's about God coming to dwell with us. And that is why justice is such a priority. God wants to dwell with his people, and as the creator, he has put things in motion so that things can be put as right as possible in advance of his final coming when he will complete the job and put things right. 
He will do this work of judgment and justice, not because he's a crabby old mean judge who just wants to punish people for being naughty, but because he is the good and wise creator who longs to see this world reflecting and finally embodying his glory. Psalm 72, it says that the coming king will do justice, rescuing the poor and the widows and the orphans so that God's glory may fill the whole earth. And the world will be put right. And God will bring what is often referred to as restorative justice in order to come and make this world his home. Which introduces us, of course, now to the story of Jesus and Jesus' teaching of the kingdom of God among us. So I mentioned earlier, much of Western Christianity has assumed that the biblical story, story is primarily about humans leaving this world and going to live somewhere else with God. That wasn't Jesus' message at all. All four Gospels teach that the justice dream of Israel was now being fulfilled, even in ways that many had not even imagined yet. We see this in Mary's song. Uh, after she realizes that she's been told that she is pregnant with the, the Son of God and she cries out in a prophetic way how the, um, the uh, poor will be lifted up and the rich will be sent away empty. We see this also in Jesus' declaration in Nazareth where he comes and he says, He has come to proclaim good news to the poor, to set the prisoners free, to the recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Many of Jesus' parables spoke about God working at deep-level judgment, deep-level justice, I mean, challenging the arrogant, the rich, and the powerful, and planting new seeds of hope and forgiveness and restoration. Jesus spoke of God becoming king at last, and he demonstrated this by hanging out with sinners and the outcasts at parties, rescuing people from bondage, whether physical, mental, social, emotional, he went about, we might say, putting things right. The very heart of the biblical idea of justice. In other words, Jesus came proclaiming and demonstrating that the coming age is already arriving. This is what it will look like when Israel's God comes back in person to put everything right at last. Most amazingly and boldly then in this, Jesus declared that he was the one true king, the Messiah the one spoken of in the Older Testament. Obviously, he wasn't setting himself up as a, a normal kind of king. He wasn't putting armies together to go battle the hordes of heathens at the gates. But this wasn't because his kingdom vision was about people going to heaven instead. It was because his scripturally rooted vision of God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven was about peace and judgment, not power over, not vengeance, not bloodshed. And in all this, we see the work of Jesus on the cross in a mystery that we should admit is beyond our understanding, where Jesus takes on upon himself the full force of this world's injustice. We see this in the stories of Jesus' trials before Caiaphas, the high priest, and all the injustice of there, before Pontius Pilate, and all the injustice there. These are stories about the justice bringer, the joy bringer, coming face to face with systems of injustice, of evil that corrupts and distorts and tortures and kills everything in its path. And Jesus stood in that path. Now, the crucifixion of Jesus has many deep meanings, many theological 
traditions behind them, and there's obviously no time to explore any of that, and that may be above my pay grade anyway. But we can't not ignore the plain meaning of the text, that Jesus was taking upon himself the injustice of this world and was dying under its weight. Faced with the awful brutality of the cross, it seems as though the dream of justice we see in the Older Testament was ruined forever. But Isaiah 53 comes along here, perhaps the best-known prophecy of the suffering servant of the Lord, where it speaks precisely of that servant of the Lord whose life was taken away by oppression and injustice as he was wounded for our transgressions. Now, because of our very individualistic orientation that we've been trained with since birth, it's very possible in our religious tradition to make me and my sin the primary issue about Jesus coming to earth. But my, my sin, my, my personal sin, is simply one outflowing of the primary global human diseases, which are idolatry and injustice. When we worship anything other than God, we will fail to reflect his image into the world, and instead we will mess things up. And then, in other words, injustice comes along. Sin means missing the mark, the target of an authentic, uh, God-reflecting human life. But injustice, this is the larger reality. As a theologian and scholar N.T. Wright likes to say, and I've borrowed and stolen heavily from him a bunch of his books on this stuff, he says it this way, any suggestion that because we are saved from sin, we don't need to bother about justice, is like saying that because I have cut my toenails, I don't have to worry if my whole foot is gangrene. Injustice is the bigger issue. So when we consider the crucifixion in this way, as the four Gospels present it, the meaning of Jesus' resurrection here becomes more clear. Jesus' resurrection has nothing to do with him leading us into a disembodied, ethereal, otherworldly life after death and forgetting about putting things right in this world. When we look at the Easter story from within the story that Jesus was living and telling, we see first that by his death, he has defeated the dark power of injustice. If he hadn't, the resurrection couldn't have happened. But second, that God's new world that the Older Testament prophecies teach us about has been launched. So how did this work? Didn't mean that Jesus would set up a kind of tribunal where he would dispense justice like an ordinary judge. His followers did ask, if you remember, in the first chapter of Acts, if he would at this time restore the kingdom to Israel. And they were thinking that maybe now he might displace Herod or the Romans or or whomever. Jesus' reply to that question is a bit of a yes, but. Yes, if Jesus himself is now the king of Israel and the Lord of this world, he's the one who will put all things right. And therefore, his followers are to go out into that world and be his witnesses, his ambassadors to do as Jesus did. But that means to declare primarily in action that Jesus is the Lord, that we are following him and a new way of living has been launched. And this way of following Jesus will not follow the normal ways of power in this world. Classics, and this happened all the time, uh, Jesus' disciples were arguing about who is greater. And uh, uh, Jesus comes along and he says to them, you guys, this is how they do it in the world. 
This is how worldly powers do it. They do power over. They, they lord it over other people. Not so with you. That's not how you're going to do it. In the kingdom that I am bringing, the first will be last, and the greater will be the servant of all. But the community of Jesus' followers, learning to worship Israel's God in and through Jesus himself, and depending on the Holy Spirit as the new power they needed, is to become this new thing in the world, this new community called the church. The church has always been designed to be the small working model of God's new creation, of the world put right as the prophets and the psalmists have always imagined. So regarding the church and God's putting things right plan, we are to be a beautiful and alternative community that is a sign and a foretaste of God's kingdom among us. So how we live together, how we love, how we make decisions, how we attend to the poor and the oppressed and the stranger and the forgotten, the least, all this is part of working for justice in this world, joining God in his justice-bringing plan. How we deal with our differences, how we accept each other, how we are patient with each other, how we demonstrate the reality of God's presence among us and our devotion to walking the way of Jesus. All of this becomes a part of joining in with God's redemption of this world. And here I, I want to say another word, if I may, of affirmation for Oak Hills Church. I know you know... You're my favorite church, so um, it's easy for me to say this, but I actually really, really mean this. Uh, so it's an affirmation, but before I get there, as you well know, the Big C Church has not looked so good the last few years, right? You talk, right? You talk to people who want nothing to do with the church anymore. In many ways, we have looked just like the rest of the world. Same antagonisms, same anger, same name-calling, same judgment. It's not been good. Millennials and Gen Z and even many older people are just leaving the church. Our younger people are leaving in alarming, alarming numbers. And I know there are many reasons, but one primary one is that we've not been that different from the rest of the world. If the church is a tube of toothpaste, maybe I've shared this before here, the difficulties and conflicts of the last few years the pandemic, the elections, the politics, the racial unrest, the social ugliness. All of this has come along as pressures external and then squeezed that tube of toothpaste. But what came out of the tube was what was already in there. It didn't create this. It exposed it. it demonstrated who we actually have been or are on the inside. And it's not pretty. But I know Oak Hill's church really well, actually. Um, I talk to Mike all the time. He's having a blast on sabbatical. Uh, I know the elders. I know the staff. I know so many leaders. And I know so many of you. And I know that Oak Hills Church is one of those churches, and there are many, who are asking all the right questions right now, all the hard questions. You are asking the who are we becoming questions. You are asking how, how do we go about following the way of Jesus in a world of antagonisms. Because you have for some, now, some time now been following a path of formation in the way of Jesus, a path of authentic transformation, a path where you are not just trying to be someone you know perfectly well, you are not. 
But, but through your intentional cooperation with the work of the Holy Spirit, the transforming work of the Holy Spirit, you are learning over the course of a lifetime of this church to routinely and easily live your life as Jesus would live his life, if Jesus would to live it as if he were you. And I'm here to say to you, as clearly as I can, this world needs you. This world needs you to be a beautiful and alternative community that points people towards the way of Jesus and the way of justice. There will be times when we are called to do big things, to join with others and to work for big issues of justice. Those times have come often in the past. Some are here already. They will come again. And when they come, we must be willing to show up and to show up big. But the real work of justice is worked out in this beautiful community together as we love each other, as we accept and care for each other, as we gather around the Lord's table discerning his presence, listening deeply to each other, in submission to each other, on mission together. This is what changes the world. The church of the first few centuries changed the world, right? I mean, seriously, bigly. But not through worldly power, not, not through getting uh, the supposed right candidates in office. The early church lived in a hostile environment that periodically tried to just snuff them out. And yet they thrived. They turned the world upside down because they were beautiful, because they were different. They had this alternative way of living in the world, of loving each other and loving this world. We are invited in this grand story of God's redemption of this world, a world that God loves. And in this, we need to be this beautiful and alternative community that is a sign and a foretaste of the kingdom that is now and is yet to come. And at the heart of this joining with God on mission is our pursuit of justice to attend to the needs of the poor, the oppressed, the lonely, the forgotten, the marginalized. As it is clear in Scripture, God hears and responds to the needs of the poor, the widows, the orphans, the stranger, the refugee. And we must live our communal lives together with the same focus. And in doing so, we are all part of God's grand and beautiful redemption of this world that is precious to him. Would you pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have created a world in which you desire to live. And you are always about seeking to set things straight. And right now in your economy, you have given us the opportunity as your church to be a sign and a foretaste of this kingdom where we are beautiful together as we seek to follow you as we demonstrate that there is a way of living that reflects the beauty of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So give us the hearts, the intensity, the, the passion, and the resolve to pursue this life together. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.